Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Contained herein are the heresies of Radolf Buntwine, erstwhile monk turned traveling medical investigator. Join me as I uncover the blasphemous truth of a plague-ridden world. That ours is not a loving God, and we are not its favored children. The Heresies of Radolf Buntwine, coming January 2nd, wherever podcasts are available. It's time for the Life Writing Podcast with your hosts, authors and screenwriters Stephen Barnes and Tanana Reeve Dew. All about creating the project of your dreams while living a balanced artist life. Be the hero or heroine of your own story. Sponsored by LifeWritingPremium.com. Get ready to write for your life. Welcome to the Life Writing Podcast, where married authors and screenwriters Stephen Barnes and Tananari do talk about writing during stressful times, breaking into Hollywood, and balancing life. Every week, we're talking about more tips on how to build a better life while you create your dream projects, even if it's only at the rate of one sentence a day. Life writing is the application of the tools of writing to life and the tools of life to your writing. And it's so good to be back. Yes. Thank you, everybody. Oh, my God. So kind. They waited outside all all night, some people, to get in line to get a seat in our studio audience. (laughs) (laughs) Steve just got back from NorwestCon, so I'm handling the podcast solo. We have a great guest today, author and screenwriter Victor Laval, who has been on the show before. He was on earlier in the podcast, History, when we had a whole panel of authors who participated in the Shudder AMC Plus project Horror Noir, which was a horror anthology series. But today we're going to talk about his new novel, Lone Women, and also breaking into TV from the prose side, which is always an adventure. I can't wait to trade stories with him. But for now, what's been going on? I'd like to share. Hey, so there it is. I wish I could just let that whole thing play out. I love that. I love that music. And glad to be back on the the, the podcast, back live. We took a week off because Roy Wood Jr. just did such a great job hosting The Daily Show. And to us seems like the obvious choice to be the permanent host that we decided to replay our Roy Wood Jr. interview. And he was our very first interview. And I don't think y'all completely grasp that the podcast was little more than an idea when we approached him. We started in January in 2022, one of those New Year's resolutions. Okay, we're going to start a podcast. And coming into podcasting fairly late, it was like, eh, doesn't everybody already have a podcast? Where will we fit in? And it was such a 
boost of confidence for someone at Roy Wood Jr.'s level to say, hey, I want to come on your podcast, making it feel like it was a real thing. We actually did have a podcast. And then in the craziest turn possible, our next guest was Patton Oswalt. So I guess we were off to the races. Our first two guests were comics, even though mostly this is a podcast for writers, but of course, comics are also writers. So this this podcast is really about all of the arts. And I love, I want to have some musicians in, I want to have all kinds of people in, but really getting advice from other people who you know, or people I admire, like, how do you keep it together? How do you keep it balanced? And that's, that's what the life writing podcast is all about. So, you know, I don't want to keep Victor too long, but I will say this, I am very excited that I'm actually working on a spec script. I really want to let that applause run for like five minutes because it's the thing that's hardest for me to find the time for is something that is purely speculative when I have a bunch of deadlines. And the irony, and this is important for those of you who want to write scripts, I just saw a tweet from a screenwriter who said he's been in the business for 30 years and he has never sold a script to a studio. Now, how you may ask, is that possible? Because he's been hired to write scripts for other people. He's been brought in as like, I don't know what his IMDb page looks like, but the spec script is that thing that you are writing from your heart, your story, you're writing it pretty much in some ways just for fun or practice. (laughs) And, And then there are people who hire you to work on their concepts and their scripts. And that's probably how he's making his living. So he's just saying that in terms of his scripts, 30 years, never sold one to a studio. And as daunting as that can be to hear from someone, I think it's really important for everyone to understand how tough it is to break into Hollywood, to sell it. I mean, every time you see a movie based on original script, that is a miracle. That movie is an absolute miracle. So I think sometimes as screenwriters, we beat ourselves up and we're like, oh, I'm not good enough or I'll never get my break. There are a lot of people out there not getting their breaks. And what you really have to do is just keep writing. And as Rodney Barnes, the previous guest on this show, told us, the spec script is the currency in Hollywood, especially if you you want to work in TV. And Victor and I will be talking a lot about TV. But the thing about TV is that because it is so collaborative, You can have a script with your name on it that you had very little to do with writing. And everybody knows this. That's just the way TV works. So the spec script is king. You know, writing, you're a pilot based on original concept or even writing a script based in the universe of another show, but that just shows your voice. Because as Rodney Barnes said, the voice is everything in Hollywood. And that's what they want to see. So as I'm working on this spec script, which is, by the way, it's, I think it'll be called Bear Creek Lodge, although there's a real Bear Creek Lodge in Colorado, so I'm a little on the fence about that. But I have a, a short story I wrote in an anthology called Other Terrors, Incident at Bear Creek Lodge. And I always intended that to be the backstory to a contemporary creature story in the woods, because that's my thing. So I'm writing a, a creature movie 
in the woods. And it's just, it's so much fun. And will it ever get made? That's the thing. As a screenwriter, you have to let go of that concept of what the future of your project is. You really have to sort of live in the moment. What lessons am I learning in the moment? How is this bringing me joy in the moment? And then when it's finished, you have a great writing sample, if nothing else, right? And then from there, who knows? Maybe a graphic novel like The Keeper. That started as a spec script and it turned into a graphic novel. So you never know. And that's the weird thing about screenwriting. And I'm sure Victor and I are going to chop that up, but that it's like such a strange thing to spend so much time working on things that may never see the light of day. (laughs) But in any case, let me introduce Victor. Victor Laval is the author of the short story collection Slap Boxing with Jesus, five novels, The Ecstatic, Big Machine, The Devil and Silver, The Changeling, and his newest novel, which I'm right in the middle of, Lone Women, two novellas, Lucretia and the Croons and The Ballad of Black Tom. Y'all may heard of, have heard of some of those books. He's also the creator and writer of two comic books, Victor Laval's Destroyer and Eve. His new novel, well, not new, but... The novel that we will be talking a bit about, The Changeling, will soon be airing on Apple TV Plus, starring Lakeith Stanfield, who is in Get Out, as you may know, and so many other great films. Victor's been the recipient of numerous awards, including the World Fantasy Award, the British Fantasy Award, the Bram Stoker Award, the Whiting Writers Award, a Guggenheim Fellowship, Shirley Jackson Award, American Book Award. Dang, Victor, you done won all the awards. Raised in Queens, New York. He now lives in the Bronx with his wife, the writer Emily Rabateau. Am I pronouncing that right, Victor? Rabateau. Rabateau. Okay. Rabateau. And great kids. He teaches at Columbia University. Please welcome to our studio the great Victor Laval. Hello, everybody. Okay. All right. So I'm gonna I'm gonna turn on your video, Victor. Just for promo purposes, this is how we usually use the video. So great to have you back on the podcast. We have not had many returning guests. You're only the third. No, wait. You're only the the second returning guest. Oh, I'm honored. I remember I listened to the... Who was the other returning guest? Because I listened to the return. Patton Oswalt. Patton Oswalt. That's right. That's right. That's right. I still can't believe we did it once, but he came back again. (laughs) So welcome back. But I really thought it was worthwhile to have a solo episode with you because you do have such a great body of work. You've been so influential in what people call elevated horror. I, and it's not it's a term I'm not. It's a touchy familiar. term. It's yes. a touchy term. Let's just say horror, because, yes. you know, when people when people ask me about the rise in particular of marginalized and black horror. Yeah. I tend to look at it as sort of two hands, the left hand and the right hand. One is on the cinematic side, which is Jordan Peele. Absolutely. (laughs) Period, end of sentence. And on the literary side, there are a lot of writers, and you are chief among them, who have risen in recent years and really claimed your spot in terms of helping people understand that horror may not be what they think it is in a literary sense. It's not necessarily just blood spattering on a wall, although it can be. I'm that all, too. Yes. I'm, I'm all for blood spattering on a wall. In fact, I'm not going to say there's no blood spattering on walls in lone women, as a matter <laughs> of fact. <laughs> but congratulations to you. And tell us a little bit. Let's start with the book, because I remember... A few years ago, you published a short story. Was the short story also called Lone Women or was it? It was called, yeah, it was called Lone Women. Wait, I believe it was called Lone Women. That's how long ago the short story collection, it was called Long Hidden. Long Hidden. 
And it was an anthology by marginalized speculative fiction writers. I don't even know if it's in print anymore. I, I need to look into that. But it, I had a story in there and you yes, wrote you a short story based in this world. And at the yes. time I reached out to you and I was like, I need more. And you were like, I'm, <laughs> I'm going to give you more. Yeah, someday. But yeah. that was a long time ago, Victor. It sure was. <laughs> it sure was. was. Like, what, that was so? like 2014, I think, when that anthology came out. I, I looked it up not that long ago. Wow. Yeah. So, so before, well, first tell everyone like sort of your elevator pitch thumbnail of what this novel is about and mm-hmm. then unpack the process a little bit. Did it take longer than you were anticipating? Well, so yeah. So first, thanks for having me. And uh, I'm so happy like in this, if I could say like in this new renaissance of horror, particularly like horror by Black writers, by people of color, all the rest. I'm so happy that like I'm a, I am get to be a part of it, that I get to be a part of it with colleagues like you who have been knocking it out for even longer and also enjoying, you know, like uh, that, uh, that, uh, that like well-deserved attention and like readership. It's just not, and like not to mention all the TV stuff and all that. It just it feels very nice to sometimes be at the when the wave is cresting rather than when the wave is crashing. <laughs> I right? know, right? I know. <laughs> so, so I'm really happy to be a part of of that with you and with many other wonderful folks who are working now. But okay, so Lone Women. The short pitch of it would be: it takes place in 15 in the United States when a black southern black Southern Californian farmer named Adelaide Henry leaves her family farm by setting it on fire with her, this is not a spoiler, with her dead parents inside. And she flees Southern California for Montana. And she brings nothing with her but a large steamer trunk that has a a enormous padlock on it. And she has to keep it padlocked because when that trunk opens, people die. How about that? I, I see you've done this one or, two, <laughs> one or three times. Now, that sounds great. And as someone who had read the original short story, of course, I already knew yeah. yes. what was in the trunk. So <laughs> I was like, it's that difference between surprise and suspense, right? Yes. So for the yes. reader, it's surprise. But for me, it's like, oh, shoot, what's going to happen when they open the trunk? <laughs> So like you just mentioned, Long Hidden came out. Let me see. I think that. it was 2014. Maybe 20, I'm wrong. Let me look at 2014, which means yeah. you wrote that short story in 2013. That's right. Probably. So did you think immediately, oh, this is going to be a novel. Let me just pop off a piece here. Or was it based on reaction to the short story that you decided to write the novel? And then what took so long? Because it's 2023 now. It's 2023. Well, it, the truth of it is like I wrote that story and... I really liked being in that world and all the rest, but in a way, like the story took took the reader up to what would be in the novel now, like the equivalent of maybe the first third or so of the book. And, and I didn't know enough. I didn't have enough in mind for what would come after. So I basically put it down and I started work on a book called The Changeling. Mm. And, and that was partly because if it was 2013, 2014, our older son was three at that point and our younger son was two one and a half or two and so i was deep in the in the 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 beautiful the beautiful pit yes of of parenting when kids are very young and so i wanted to write about that time while i was in it because i knew i would forget a great deal of it when time passed because you know people when the kids were that little 
people would come, I know it's the truth, but with, with the sort of like wearying cliche of cherish every moment mm. because it's going to go by so fast. And I knew it was true. And at the same time, I wanted to say, shut up. Because it's not moving fast at all. No, um, really, it's so weird. You know, because when you're in the thick of it, every day is like endless. Yes, I, I mean, like, in all the best been a ways. Year. <laughs> I mean, yeah, good ways, but also I think there's nothing wrong with sharing the truth that it is definitely hard raising kids, and and being honest even with the kids about. It. We even say with our kids, we'd be like, when they say like, why didn't you do this? Whatever we say, like, we fed you and raised you. <laughs> You you have you are doing great, right? Uh, so far, but and by anyway, the way, that was all the energy we had. So and that was all yeah. we had, and half the time we didn't even have that. That's why Faking you know it. so much about Magic School Bus. <laughs> you watched a lot of it. So we so anyway. So I wrote that. That was that took about four years, I think, probably or three three years. It, I started in maybe 2014, and it came out in 2017. Yes, and and then right after that, I did Bow to Black Tom, and then. And then I had this gap and I, and I felt like I had read enough, enough other historical stuff. And I had maybe in a way, a better sense of how that story might go for lone women. And then I came back to it. So I came back to it probably in 20, 2018, well, that's, 2019. That's not too bad. Not too bad. And then yeah. a global pandemic hit. Yeah. And that slowed me down quite a bit because then my wife and I were with our kids in our two bedroom apartment in Washington Heights for two years. And so getting any writing done was piecemeal. You know, oh, they I were bet. in school and all the rest. Right. And uh, but then thankfully it's not a very long novel. It's only about 275 pages, I think. And so that was the one saving grace. I said like just don't make it long. Just every time I started going into these longer tangents and other, I said just stop it because this will never get done. I mean, you know what? I wish I had had more of those conversations with myself <laughs> when I was writing the reformatory because this thing is thick. It's a doorstop. Yeah, I was like, wow. I'm, I'm so looking forward to diving into it. So long. But well, I appreciate that. You know, the Bla- the Ballad of Black Tom was also historical. So was that yes. helpful? It's not the same era, but there are whispers, you know, that are not too similar, or at least 1924 is more similar to the time period in Lone Women than certainly a contemporary novel would yes. be. And it, I will say it did it did give me confidence when I was able to. I, so, Battle Black Tom is 1924, and it's set in New York, Harlem at that time. Mm-hmm. And so, I did get my feet wet in a place I did know. And so, I felt like okay. And I got to practice some of the things that I like. Uh, like, I really don't like historical stuff that feels like kind of fussy or where you can see all the research oh, right. uh, too too much, or where it just feels like it's divorced from the contemporary world in any way. You know, like one of the things I felt very deeply was like one of the great things about historical fiction is how it lets you talk about then, but also about now. Yes, absolutely. And so doing it for Black Tom, getting it under my like under my feet did make me say like, okay, now I'm going to go to Montana in 1915, writing a cast almost entirely women. All right. I feel a little more confident. Let's give it a try. Well, I I love historicals. You can get really, really lost in the research stage. I've I've experienced that. And I've written a couple of books set in this time period or close to it. The Black Rose, which was Madame C.J. Walker, and then Joplin's Ghost, where half of it was Scott Joplin's time period at the turn of the century. And I was like, okay, come through, Victor, with the Annie Malone (laughs) reference with the hair pomade. Because I noticed 
You mentioned the hair pomade, and I was like, okay, what you got? And it was Annie Milan. It's like, oh, okay, with the big cap. <laughs> it's not mad of CJ Walker. That's right. He's going to like Annie Malone. I see. <laughs> <laughs> Did you use the Sears catalog? Because that's my favorite secret weapon. And I'm- did you have one? You know what I had? Not, I didn't have the Sears catalog, but what I did have was like to my great joy on Pinterest, all these mm. folks have like just catalogs of the era. Oh, so uh, you so, didn't need the Sears catalog. Right. So you I would go through the internet. Yes. Yes. And just say like, okay. Oh, it, like just taking like even the, the way in the catalog, they would describe the clothing and I would say, oh, okay, that's called a such and such thing and just pop it in there and then suddenly it seems like i know what i'm talking about <laughs> it's so great and thank yes. you people on the internet for your your obsessions because yes. they're so helpful to writers they are a gift but to I, writers they are a gift to writers but i i do love my series catalog because it's just you know it's like did they have rubber bands in 1909 it's like well here they are and here's wow. how much they cost it's so great is but it in hard any case, is it a hard copy is it like a Something you yeah it's, it's, a, it's uh, a hard copy. I wish I had it with me. I I have several. I have one from 1909. I have one from 1896. Oh, wow. You should check those out. If I definitely should. Absolutely. It's historical. It's just for, I keep it in the bathroom for browsing, just because I find it <laughs> I fascinating. Listen, <laughs> maybe I love maybe that. TMI. I don't know, but anyway, you got to read that. something. Hey there, this is Justin Bartha. I made a funny new podcast, King of the Egg Cream. It has the greatest cast in the history of podcasts with actors like Louis Black. I'm torn by my feelings for two women. Bobby Cannavale. You can eat it, or if someone hits you, you can put it on your cut. Melanie Linsky. I wonder what these marvelous things are that look just like boiled chicken feet. Jason Ritter. I can break things and pick locks and kill people. Michael Stuhlbarg. The whole point is to inspire people that they should make themselves better. Ari Grainer. No, don't whet its appetite. What are you, an idiot? Me, Justin Bartha. That's not just any egg cream, that's a Lemke's special. And all narrated by the hilarious Richard Kind. This is the story of Harry Dalowitz. And how he rose from nothing to become New York's King of the Egg Cream. So if you like funny true stories, come listen to King of the Egg Cream, available wherever you get your podcasts. Yeah, you got to read something. So it's so great. (laughs) How does it feel to be back on, I don't know if you're touring. I saw you had a conversation with Matt Johnson. We're we're doing that. That's for his, actually for his book. Oh, that's for his book. In another week. I surprised, you know, interestingly enough, at least for me, when I went in to talk with the publisher, and maybe this is a separate conversation, but this, I would say for Lone Women, this is the first time when I've really felt like I've got, like I've had enthusiasm at the house in various ways in the past. But this one was really one where it was really like we met months ahead of time and they were really into it. And I felt like, okay, I'm hitting, if the, even the people here, like up and down the chain are getting into this, okay, maybe I've, I'm hitting a, a, a good note or something. But one of the things when they came in, I said, like, look, you know, I, my wife and I, the kids are still relatively young. We're just coming out the other end of COVID. My wife is also a writer. Like, I don't want to tour very much because I don't know that I think it sells very many books. Right. And then they were like, we totally agree. We could not agree more. We about could not, not agree more. <laughs> exactly. About not sending you anywhere. But the truth of it was, since this is the other part of our conversation, I was like when this was coming out, I was at the end of a of a writer's room for a show. 
and then moving into hopefully what will be another thing. And so yes. it's also that like I couldn't actually go out, you know, in the way that in the past maybe I would have wanted to. Or you know, I I think that's important. I think part of it, I, I probably from the publisher standpoint, is a financial model. Because I know yes. back when I started publishing in the nineties, they were going hog wild with those tours. I had yes. one house give me like an American Express card to use on tour. Wow! And, and you would get a hardcover tour and a paperback tour. Wow! Hotels like best hotels all the way, and you know when I was single, that was fun. Yes, I'm sure. <laughs> yeah, but by the time I was even married, much less by the time I had Jason, yeah. uh, much less exciting to to be on the road, leaving the house. And and post COVID, I'm literally still figuring out how to pack again. I'm still figuring out how to drive again and be in crowds with people. Yes. So I was I was recently at the National Black Writers Conference in New York, which was fantastic. And I love seeing everybody, but I, I scheduled a day for myself that was just not realistic in terms of everything I was planning to hit. Right. And then and by the time I had finished my panel, I was like, mm, you know what else I want to hit? My bed right now, because I'm so <laughs> tired. Right. And I'm with you. It's just like the airport, the travel. Let's find some other ways. But I love the enthusiasm. My house, the press, similarly speaking for the reformatory was like let's push this to october we want to have a little more lead time good we want to gather good. some more excitement around it so yeah and if they can do that without me having to be on the road i'm with you that is yes like, <laughs> especially when you mention sort of not so graceful transition the television <laughs> writing right right because <laughs> you know that that's a pretty, I mean, I don't even know where to begin. I'm going to start with you. I mean, I've, I've talked to you about the fact that I just finished a six week, what I'll call think tank yes. uh, for Brian Fuller, who's working on Crystal Lake and was there with Steve and, and a fantastic group of writers. And we'll, we'll go back and forth, but tell the audience you're, you're, you're like walking ahead of me on this path. You, you're working on your own adaptation and it's very, very close, it sounds like, to actually being a thing, the changeling. So talk about that and your involvement with it. And what was it like as a prose writer to be in a writer's room? Because it's a different animal than what we're used to completely. For sure. That's for sure. So the the path is actually like, so for the changeling, that book was optioned in 2017. And then the writer creator came on board pretty quickly, a woman named Kelly Marcel. And she did this very unusual thing. As soon as she signed on, she was living in LA at the time. She caught a flight, came to New York and took me to lunch. And at that Wait, lunch, she actually wanted to talk to the author. Not that's, I, that's not even so at that lunch. She said, this is our adaptation. Like we're going to work on this together. Oh my um, God. It was amazing. I can't tell you like a, and even to cement the point, we at at during our lunch, she took a photo of the two of us together and she sent it to the producers. And she said, I just want you to understand this is who your writing team is. This oh is my who's, goodness. Yeah, it was amazing. And so then what happened was so actually, so the first step was so she's 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 written two movies. She had a TV show that sold back in the day. So she had some real power to her. So we sold it at the time to FX to the FX mm-hmm. network. Mm-hmm. And then for reasons that are too complicated and not worth going into, <laughs> who has uh, the time? Who has yes, the time? Uh, the it, the show stopped being at FX, and Kelly got it to Apple TV. 
Oh, she, wow. She moved it there. And then once they were on board, she started writing the scripts. And she wrote the whole first season, eight episodes. And what she would do is she would write the scripts and she would mail them. I mean, email them to me, ask me to read them. I would give her notes on them. And then we would send them in. Wow. So no um, room, really, no for, room for the first season. That is just a creator driven. And that is one model. You know, That's one that model is, for sure. Yeah. yeah and so it, the, and very intimately involved for you. So that's fantastic. It was a, such a gift for me. And then because, and I had told her that I was interested in getting into TV and she said, okay, we're going to try to figure out how best to help you be a part of all this. So, so the writing is being, is done. Scripts go in and then they say, okay, we like this. We want to go into production. And then at that stage, Kelly had a, another movie that she was now she had written it but she was also going to direct it and she didn't know when it was going to go yes and so what she said was in our original deal i had my contract gave me a co-executive producer credit and so kelly said i want victor to be on set with uh, me and so, so and then what she also said is and so therefore i want him to be an executive producer wow yes. i mean let me let's just pause Truly. Because I, I don't even think people understand that there are people who have served in multiple writers' rooms, especially since COVID, who have never been on set. That's right. And being on set is really the key ingredient from what I've read and heard. Yes. To being able to move up, not just to be a more effective staff writer because you are not even a staff writer or or story editor or executive producer or whatever you are, yes. but to, to be in training for a showrunner. You can't That's really right. be a showrunner if you haven't been on set, I would think, not very effectively. So yes. you said you're interested in TV and she's she knows. That's like the basic thing, boots on the ground. That's right. And so essentially, so she... She got them, the producers in Apple, I got my bump up to EP. Nice. And then, and then essentially we shot in New York for five weeks. I was on set almost every day in New York. And then the production moved to Toronto and I moved the family to Toronto and I was on set every day in Toronto till the end of the summer. So how, how long months. was that? About six weeks? Three months. Three months. Holy I think, cow. Three yes. months and your family agreed to do this with you. That is well, it was so the end of the school year. So awesome. actually, maybe two and a half months. Okay, uh, and uh, and even that was its own lesson because I think the agreement we they all like the exciting thing was we all want to move to Toronto. We'd never been, love to be there. Mm-hmm. We found summer camps for the kids. Nice. My wife is a writer as well, so she would write during the day in theory. And but what we discovered was its own education. Everyone has agreed they don't want to do that again. Oh, in part because you know the kids don't. All their friends are here in yeah. New York, and my wife. Her mother's in New Jersey mm-hmm. and her friends are here. My mother's in Yonkers. The support system is yes. not in place. And so we realized like that was its own education. Like, oh, maybe in the future, if there's another thing that goes, it'll be two weeks. Everyone come for two weeks, then I'm gone for a little while. Then I mm-hmm. come back, you know, whatever mm-hmm. it might be. Mm-hmm. Uh, so anyway, so that's all to say the great thing about being able to be on set was I got to, I I, I, I met almost, I met all the directors couple of them, even I was in sessions where they were working with the actors re- rehearsing and, wow. and all this kind of stuff. Nice. Uh, I got to meet the, I met the, the, the DPs and talked with them. I met the makeup people the, and I made it a point in my head to just go to every single person, the script coordinator and just sit there and be like, so what do you do? Like, can I watch you working? Like mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. ignore me. And I just want to see how your job works. And it was like such an amazing education. 
so so that was the changeling and then and then i amc bought another book of mine called the devil in silver yes um, i love that book. thank you and that was the one that is so because of my experience on the changeling as an ep i was able to make a argument that i want to be a co-showrunner for this show and so then in the amazing thing of all things i got to interview three different people to co-show run with me and I got the great fortune of doing it with a guy named Chris Cantwell, who did an amazing show called Halt and Catch Fire that was on AMC for a few years. And then once he and I were together, then we started a writer's room, like a mini room, I guess it's, it's called. So it was myself and Chris, two writers, two mid-level writers, a writer's assistant and a showrunner's assistant. And we did 14 weeks. 14 weeks. That is a very tiny room. Sometimes when people say mini room, it refers to the length of time. Yes. (laughs) And in this case, it's a tiny room. It was the length and the size. Handful of you. Yes. I'm just in awe at the way way you were able to parlay that first experience from the changeling to be co-showrunner. Because that's another complaint that a lot of writers have is that you get stuck at the staff writer level and then you get stuck at the story editor level. And television writing is super hierarchical. It is. That's the thing that was the most eye-opening to me. And also, I I understand why it is. Because you have, in your case, two, like, handful of people in a room, all of whom might have very different ideas about how this series could look and who are all very smart people, all good writers. Absolutely. So you could be spinning in circles day after day after day if it weren't for the fact that the showrunner can just shut that down. It's like, mm, no. <laughs> which which I'm with you. That's where you want to be. You want to be the one. I was sitting next to Brian Fuller every day watching <laughs> him work. That was my version of being on set, okay? Because I, I've only been on set for the Twilight Zone, and it was just like half a day. I, yes. I flew in, had to fly out. I was just basically walking around with stars in my eyes. You know, <laughs> I, I wasn't directing anything or learning it. Not directing, but I wasn't. I wasn't helping to shape the episode. I was. Right. I was just experiencing. Oh my gosh! Look, it's David Wayans Jr. Not quite that bad, <laughs> but but on I, the inside, right? But I didn't even understand that one of the differences between film and TV, for example, is that. Writers on set have power in TV. Right. Whereas in film, nothing. Nothing. (laughs) Nothing. (laughs) I mean that. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, to that point, to your to the the, one of the things that was also so interesting to watch. So the great other thing that I got lucky about was that Kelly. This was myself. So Kelly's film, like she's there now. She's she's doing the prep now. Like they're going to start filming pretty soon. So I got to, so she was there the whole time. And so what that meant was there were certain days she couldn't be on set, like uh, for whatever reason. And then on that day, I was the person everyone would come to. They were coming to you asking you If there were questions, yeah. And the nice thing was like, you know, Kelly, but the bigger thing was I got to shadow Kelly Mm. and I got to see like, number one, the, the the writer is the head of things. I mean, the showrunner is the head of things. But it was interesting to watch like what that means wasn't like, don't do it that way or, you know, it wasn't that. It was more like your, at least her version of it was you're collaborating with everyone. You're letting them try things out. Like if a director said, I 
I know you have the scene written this way, but I would love to try it like with the camera under the bed. So it feels almost like a kid hiding from their parents. And then, you know, and then Kelly could go, I love it. Let's, let's try it. And, you know, sometimes it was just you half a day got killed over a thing that was, that didn't mean any, like in the end, it didn't work Mm. because it just was too static or whatever. But it was interesting to see that like the point of being the showrunner or like being the last word wasn't to say, do everything I tell you. Right. It was also to say, I love the idea of that. I love your creativity being, you know, sort of channeled through that. Let's try it. Knowing that like in the end, I'm going to be the one who says yes or no to these things. But I wouldn't have thought of that because I'm not the director. Right. And it's... That's just getting to watch that happen again and again. The actors in particular, like, could I try to convey this without saying this whole speech? Maybe one line could do it. And she'd she'd say, let's see it. Let's do a take. And they'd do it and she'd go, I don't think the one line does it, but you don't need everything that I gave you. How about these three lines? And then they'd go, okay. And it was just watching that collaboration at work was riveting, you know, just from the outside. This is also, it sounds like great training, perhaps to be a director, if that's something yes. you'd like to do. Why do you have it that? Is. It is. Well, I know like, you do. Yeah. Like, I, I'm a faithful <laughs> listener to the show. So I know that that was brought up to you. I have a little bug. Yes. And so, yeah, it's, so yeah, it's fascinating stuff. Well, given that you had such a Cinderella experience, like that you had a creator driven series season where she yeah. wrote every script and you just had to read them and say what you thought. <laughs> yes. That's, that is not how it usually works. In a no. So what has the greatest learning curve for you been as specifically someone coming from the outside, a prose writer, mm-hmm. in learning how to deal with, with the TV writing process? Well, so two things. Number one, the first, the biggest thing is just being willing to collaborate mm. because I am used to as the fiction writer. Certainly my editors have notes. My wife reads my stuff. My best friend, Matt, reads my stuff. My agents certainly read. And they all have points. And I hopefully at this point, I'm mature enough to say like the best point will win to help me get better. But in the end, it's still me. You're the showrunner. You're like I'm the, the showrunner show book. I'm right. And I'm the book. costume designer. Yeah, the you're writer, everything. Everything. <laughs> yeah. And so like in particular, when we moved into the writer's room where it was me and Chris show running together and then the writers in the room pitching ideas and all the rest i did have a little time where i would just be like no, no. in my head i didn't say it i knew right. enough to say like 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 with improv you don't don't shut anything down right but it took me a little while to because one of the things that was the most sort of like frightening but then in the end thrilling was when sometimes things would come up as we were adapting the devil and silver where i'd be like oh that's better than what i did in the book Right. True. But then, and then the, but then the, the thing that the gift that I was, I was reminded of was like, and this is, I think in a way, the, one of the great things about being a prose writer who goes into TV, the book is never, they can never take the book away. No. Good, bad, whatever. It's got your name on it. That's it. And so I started to see like, oh, that, that actually gives me the room to say that thing you're suggesting, Chris, or our two writers, Adria and Vanessa, or our our writer's assistant, Shakira, or our showrunner's assistant, Maddie, if they had a better idea and it was better than the thing I'd come up with 10 years ago, I started to go like, oh, this is amazing. Like I get a second chance to do this. 
You know, Victor, that's exactly how I have felt these past 23 years, actually, adapting and creating pitches with Steve, yeah. right? It's because you add another lobe to your brain and it's over and over. I mean, I can't tell you, my soul to keep, the good house. We have been <laughs> on that pony so many times. Reformatory <laughs> is a good example. It got optioned before it came out. Oh, nice. So we were trying to develop it like, like what might the first series season look like long before the book came out. And some of that process did bleed its way into the final manuscript, particularly the last chapter my editor asked me to write. I'm not going to go into it, but because we had done that work for TV, when he asked me on a relatively short deadline, I'd like you to add another chapter with this kind of thing happening. We need like this kind of closure. I was ready because yeah. we'd been developing it for TV, and that was something we were going to lean into more in the series. Gotcha. So it was there, and it is. It's incredible that that actually it can exist on two different planes simultaneously. Yes. The book is its own thing, but the series has its own demands. Uh, <laughs> it's it's longer, you know. It's it's drawn out, and and you have to delve deeply into characters for casting reasons you know mm-hmm. because i have it's kids in my in my novel and and, and tv don't really play that That's a very lot well. of kids yeah i'm telling you we had we for the changeling we had one there's one section in the Changeling that takes place on a north brother island where there's a group of women and living with their children mm-hmm. and those were absolutely the hardest days because wrangling those kids keeping them interested because regardless of if they're acting one act act whatever like that they're still 10 12 year old children yes and you know saying to them this is the seventh time i want you to say this line that's a tough thing to ask it is tough children so Um, so yeah i love this idea that that the, the group think can improve upon the original while at the same time, the original is its own thing. And and I know something we've talked about was just the language of television writing Mm -hmm. is different. Like there were terms being bandied about when we were working on Crystal Lake that I was not entirely familiar with. So for the first couple of days, I really felt like I was watching the room trying to figure out the rhythm. Now you were in yes. a different position. You're a co-showrunner. Yes. So you are up there thinking you have the power to say yes or no. Although, like you said, the improv training, that's one of the first things Brian told us. It's a, it's a yes and yes. environment for the yes. staff writers. Like you're not just there to shoot other people's ideas down, especially if, if you don't have a better idea, you know, right. just be quiet. Like what? But, but my thing was trying to find like, like I wasn't the big idea person. And I think for you, maybe as the one who created the original work, it would be tough for you to be the one who's coming up with this huge out of the box, new thing that someone else who who doesn't have the same, you know, relationship to the work could very easily just say, Oh, well, why don't we just move this to here? And it's like, Oh, right. So there were the big idea people. There were theatrical pitchers who would get up and perform their pitches there were the people who just sort of kept track of what we're supposed to be talking about. And let's right. circle back because we've all gone around the table telling our childhood stories. Now let's go back to to actually the work, the actual point yes. <laughs> You know, there's that person. So I was, I was looking at all these roles and looking with the grace with which, you know, Brian, there were absolutely times he was saying no, but in a very graceful yes. and, and nurturing way, such a learning experience. What, what, what was your experience with like just the the pace of the ideas? Well, you know, that actually one of the things that took me a time to get used to, and I'm, st- I'm actually, if I'm honest, I'm 
I'm on the fence mm-hmm. about it was that so we do say let's say we we're we're deviating from the book in some sort of way this is for the devil and silver room let's say and we're deviating in part because we're not following the main character now this for this little period of time we're actually interested yeah. in in the nurse character who mm-hmm. isn't that filled out in the story so I might talk a little bit about here's who I based it on here's what I this is and this and then Chris the co-show runner he'd say when I read it I had a sense of this and and my grandmother was a nurse and some of the things she, you know, and they, we'd bring all that stuff in and exactly as you're saying. And so would, so these other, Vanessa, Adrian, everybody would have their own history of whatever. But then what would happen is then you'd start to say like, okay, well, they need to, this character is going on her own. Like, what's she going to, what's she doing? What's she going to do? Let's just say like that. And people start firing off these ideas very quickly. Yes. And one of the things that was, so what I liked about it was you just got 10, 20, 30. She's going to buy a bag of Doritos. She's going to cut someone's finger off because she's a secret torturer. She's, mm-hmm. you know, it could go in all these different directions. And the nice thing was these things would just kind of float until at a certain point, Chris or I would say, oh, that's kind of interesting. Let's explore, like, as silly as it sounds, we'd say, like, are there vending machines on this unit? Because mm-hmm. if there are, what does that mean? Can we do something fun with that? And then, and then the weird thing is we might talk about that for 20 minutes and then decide, oh, there's no vending machines. Believe me, yes. You know, like that, <laughs> kind of, which was amazing. About. Yes, you have to have the the freedom to air it all out. And yes. sometimes you end up with, ah, eh, it's not really a thing. But sometimes, you, you know, there's gold in there. My favorite Absolutely. thing as someone who wasn't coming in as a big idea person and really definitely was not the person to keep everyone on track because I was still figuring it out was to try to midwife other people's ideas. Right. Because sometimes there's the silence, which is like, okay, I'm moving on. You know, nobody has anything to say crickets. So we're going to move on to the next idea. But if there hasn't been a definitive, no, Mm-hmm. As far as I'm concerned, that idea is still alive. Maybe there's something I can add to that idea. And I would often like to decide to say, okay, I want to go back to Kara's pitch. Or I, I think Tommy's pitch was really interesting. What about mm-hmm. this? And to, and I really kind of tried to make that my my role as much as possible to try to figure out how other people's pitches could be enhanced or supported yeah. so that more people could see what the original pitcher saw. But it's it's an interesting, it's just a really fascinating process to me. I cannot wait to be in another room yeah. <laughs> because, you know, I have my own pitches going. Like you, I do want to be a co-showrunner one day, but at the same time, I definitely would love some set experience and I definitely yeah. would love just another room experience at a higher level than staff writer mm-hmm. so that I'm way more confident going into yes. the creation of my own series because I think that'll just help it make a smoother process and a better series. But what I have right now, and Brian was so sweet, he said, you're going to be running your own, you know, show one day, you and Steve. So I wanted you to have that experience, which reminds me of what your mentor did for you. Absolutely. That's right. I think that's, and I will say like the, like one of the things that also was impressed upon me was like, I don't know how you, like in a way, the, one of the things that can be so rough about Hollywood, I think is maybe it's the same as everything in the world, but like, that path up really does require a sort of like an angel investor, you know, and that if you don't have that, I don't know how you move up because who's going to co-sign, you know, like who's going to co-sign 
yes, I want you in the room. But then once you're in the room, yes, you're a person who I like how you work. I like your ideas. I want to move you up from this to this. I mean, like, so if I could say, like, we had a, a wonderful, wonderful writer's assistant in our room, and she'd been a writer's assistant for on a couple shows. And her, but her notes were so smart. And we started to encourage her to start talking. And I don't think it's bad to say, like, we, she and I co wrote the last episode of Devil and Silver, but it was, it was Chris and I saying, like, she should be writing something. She should write assistant is great, but she's done that. For and 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 just just for those of you who don't know, and speaking to the hierarchy, people will often will start as a PA. A PA is someone who just well, not just. I mean, it's primarily they're keeping the room happy, making sure the mm-hmm. lunch order is smooth, taking care of details. Sometimes doing stuff with the board. The writer's assistant takes copious notes of what is said in the long, long day, extracting the the wheat and the chaff to quote something that you talked about in Lone Women. Yes. So, you know, we would go home at the end of the day feeling like the day was a jumble. But when we look at those notes from the writer's assistant is like, Oh shoot, Isaac, you know, and Adam, Adam rather nailed this. And, and, and highlighting, of course, those things that the showrunners liked and those yes. things that will become beats on the board. And it takes a lot of skill to do that. Absolutely. And, and we were always happy when Adam spoke up in the room. Yeah. You know, so I can see that, like, when you have a very talented writer's assistant, and all these people are so talented. It's just, yes. like, it's a tough industry to get into. And to your point, Victor, like I was telling Steve yesterday, I don't know how he was writing scripts for The Outer Limits in The Twilight Zone in the 80s. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, when, yeah. When when there were no black mentors for him, right. there were no black men saying, "Hey, young man, I see some of myself in you." Right. <laughs> you know, so he had white mentors and white allies, right. which a lot of us have. You know, obviously, right. because this has been a very white one, white run industry. Mm-hmm. And while sometimes that means that the gates are closed, there are these allies who will open it just enough to let us through. Like you can get through, you find some good people who yes. see your talent, who believe in you and really want to help give you that leg up just because it's not because you're black. It's because they vibe with you as an artist and, and they, and they want you to succeed or they want more authenticity and the voice of the series or whatever their reasons are. Yes. Thank goodness for those allies. I just want to give them a, uh, some applause because I agree. I, Absolutely. So, so, so important. Really quickly before we wrap up, I mean, you're doing it all. You, like me, are also teaching, if, if I'm correct, at Columbia still. Although I'm on break, I'm on leave for the year so, to do this. So this was that was the ah. only way to make it to make it work. You know, the downside of it, of course, is like that means no salary. Uh, <laughs> right. <laughs> so so I was so that's why when they I asked for the leave. Not for when the changeling stuff was happening, but when the devil and silver stuff happened and when the writers from game, because then that would be a check, a paycheck for 14 weeks. And if they green light it, then I become a producer. And then that's that's when, you know, then it becomes a, a year of work. Well, one of, one of my first questions was going to be about that balance. Like, I just wrote to an editor and said, I don't think I can submit that story like I thought I could. It's just a matter of understanding what your own limitations are is very important. Absolutely. What, what else are you doing to find balance during this very heady period? Your kids are still young. Yes, they are. You have two writers in your house. You're working on TV and I assume are you working on another prose project? How do you, how do you find the balance? 
I mean, I will say, I think it's relatively tricky. The maybe the best part of it is the family. Well, I should say like none of the stuff that I've had to do yet required me like the kids, my wife and kids came with us to came with me to Toronto. So we were still together, you know, and then here I was in my writer's room, but because I was the co-showrunner, I could dictate that we were in the writer's room from noon to three my time. Right. So, so it was a good short period of time, but it was also, I had some say in it as opposed to if I had been working for someone, I have to follow their plans and maybe I would have to say no then because it wouldn't fit with my family life. It's but, you know, so important to have that power to, to, and even Brian was like, we're doing 11 to three, which was like, it seems like a short amount of time. 12, no, 12 that's three, a long time. Three. Yes. Sounds like a short, but it is not. That is no. a very intense three or four hours you're spending in that room. Yeah. 11 to three. I mean, we were doing 12 to three and sometimes toward the end, you could just see everybody like your brain has just been running for <laughs> so long. And you're trying to keep up with everyone else. That's the other big thing. Yeah. Um, so, so, so what we try to do, we try to like, uh, we're trying to maintain going on trips together as a family, like short, even short trips, a day or two out of town. We have movie night every Friday, like uh, having routine and regularity, I think is good for keeping bonded with my wife and kids. But also, honestly, I really love doing all the career stuff, mm-hmm. but I, but it, I really like it in part because it helps me take care of them. And then I get to be with them. And then they feed the joy I feel that I bring back to the work. That's beautiful. That's yeah. beautiful. The last piece, though, is is you personally. Do you have yeah. any no, practices, walking, meditating, music, thing that's just sort of your personal escape from the whirlwind? Well, you know, I actually have more on that. So the two years of COVID, as I said, we were pretty much trapped in that apartment. I gained a bunch of weight. I got mm. ache in my knee, all this kind of stuff. And what I did do when we we moved out of that apartment, thankfully, and moved into a house in the Bronx, that has a little more room. And so I got a treadmill. And so I, I've started using the treadmill and I get yeah. on that treadmill and I play some music or whatever like that, trying to get back inside my body, the body I had, trying to get back inside the body, the healthier body I had before COVID. And I'm just trying to tell myself the biggest thing is like everything. I'm not going to reverse two years of falling apart in a month. No, I got to give myself at least two years to get back and probably longer because it's easier to get, it's, it's, it's easier to fall apart than to fix things up. Especially when, as with the two of us, you're over the age of 25, let's say. Absolutely. Absolutely. (laughs) Yes. Well, that even that is just sort of like I was thinking like, okay, I'm going to start running like I was running before the pandemic, and this, and then my body said, no, how about you walk? Yeah, how about no? <laughs> yeah, and exactly. me kind of making peace with that and saying like, okay, I'll just walk for longer and enjoy that. You there know? you go. I so. love it. It sounds like you've got it all together. Well, I love, I love all of this. Is there any news on when the changeling might hit the air? I'm hoping it'll be this fall. They've already, Apple has already been showing us like the ad campaigns and everything else that they're going to do. And the ad campaign is going to be amazing. Like the images and stuff that they're showing that they're going to be using are like beautiful. I cannot wait. I am so happy for you. Trailblazing out there with this upcoming series and in terms of just being in 
television and, and helping to shine a path for those of us who are trying to follow behind you. Congratulations so much on Lone Women. I can't wait to see how this ends. I have some ideas of how I would like it to end, but we'll see. But we'll, see. <laughs> we'll see. Thank you so much, Victor Laval, for being with us. And everyone, go out and be the hero or heroine of your own story and the adventure of your lifetime. Take care. See you next time on the Life Writing Podcast. Bye-bye. Thanks so much, Victor. You've been listening to the Life Writing Podcast. Join us next time for more conversations about creating the project of your dreams. For more information, go to lifewritingpremium.com and get ready to write for your life.